Well, we are back in the book of Genesis, which is, in my opinion, the oldest piece of surviving literature in humanity, especially the earliest parts of it. This section here, there are a few pieces of literature written before it, but the book as a whole, one of the oldest pieces of literature, and I think the oldest piece of literature we have. And so, it almost surprises us that it keeps speaking to very modern issues, the things that we are dealing with right now that feel like new things. Well, here is the oldest book we've got speaking to them. Uh, and that's going to happen today as well. The, the modern issue that this ancient text is going to speak to today is uh, the number of leaders in the church that we have seen exposed as wolves in recent years. There were a lot of trusted celebrity teachers that we have learned were not actually shepherds, but were red-clawed and red-toothed wolves uh, preying on God's people. I'm uh, thinking of leaders like Mark Driscoll and to some degree Ravi Zacharias, and you know other names that are famous, well-known men, well-known for their gospel preaching who turned out to be predatory. And for some of us, it's not a matter of well-known famous teachers, it's lesser-known people, but people that we trusted Uh, For some of us, it's a story like, and I'm making this up, this isn't anyone in particular, but a story like the youth pastor who led me to Christ left his wife for a 25-year-old and then was revealed to be mistreating his children the whole time. And some of us are reeling with all of the mistrust that that creates, and it's it's like the chair you're sitting on just gives way or gets pulled out from under you. And at the same time, it hurts because you hit the ground. But it's also disorienting, like for a moment, which way is up? What's going on? What's happening? And a lot of you, I know, feel like this when you're looking at certain leaders in your own lives. What we are going to find here is that that's not a problem that's new. Leaders who turn out to be predatory but are within God's people, it's a very old problem. We know it's at least 2,000 years old because Jesus told us to watch out for them. He said, beware of false teachers who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are as ravenous as wolves. And Jesus told us how to identify them. He told us to identify them by their fruit. He said, by their fruit, you will know them. And the rest of the New Testament fleshes out just what that means. What is that fruit? Uh, The fruit is a holy life, a changed life that they're living and from their mouths and their teaching and preaching that the truths of the gospel, if they're departing from either one of those, they're they're false teachers. It could be in word or it could be in deed. And one of the missteps we've made as a church is we have instead said, okay, the marks we are looking for are good doctrine and results. If you preach sound doctrine and your church grows— you can get away with things. If you preach sound doctrine and your church doesn't grow, you can't get away with things. So we have traded sound teaching and a holy life for the fruit of sound teaching and results. And that's what has gotten us into trouble in many years. The Lord would call us today back to, okay, what is the fruit? What are we looking for? It's sound teaching and a holy life. James chapter three has a different way of saying this. It talks about wisdom from above and wisdom from below. Now, leaders are going to lead based on wisdom. They, they, they need to learn how to do what they're doing. They're going to get wisdom from somewhere. And James says there is a righteous wisdom that lives under God, that loves him, that seeks wisdom from him, that looks to God and asks God for wisdom. 
And when you live in that wisdom with a love for the Lord and your desire is to steward what God has given you well and love the people that God has given to you and put under your care, you look to God for wisdom, he gives it to you, and the fruit of that, he says, is first of all peaceable and then pure and then gentle. There's a holy, peaceful life that comes from a, from a leader, from a person who gets their wisdom from God and looks to God for help. And then he says also there's a wisdom from below that you can lead with. If your leadership, if your life is filled, fueled by self-interest, what he calls self-ambition, or covetousness, that is the desire to be as cool and as big as that guy is and have all the stuff that that guy has, the Lord doesn't really honor that, and so you're going to have to look not above for wisdom, but below for wisdom, he says. And the fruit that gives is conflict and corruption. So you can identify leaders that are leading with wisdom from below. You can identify people who are living with wisdom from below in the moral corruption in their lives and in the conflict that they are always bringing around them. So that's kind of the the real world picture we have there. How do we identify teachers who are coming in with selfish motives, pretending to be shepherds, but really they want to prey on us? Uh, We identify by looking at the fruit of their lives and by looking at the fruit of their doctrine that they're teaching. Now, what we need, knowing that, is a picture. Okay, what would that look like? What would it look like if there were a leader within God's people who were leading out of selfish ambition, who was causing conflict? And can can we get a story where that happens? Can we get a picture where that happens? And that is what happens in today's chapter. Today, we're going to look at Genesis 38. What many say is one of the more confusing stories in Genesis. Uh, The more confusing elements of it we're going to deal with next week. Tamar, Onan, all of those things that we're like, what is going on there? We'll deal with those next week as we look at the story through Tamar's eyes. Today we're going to look at it through Judah's eyes and see what the Lord is doing with and through him. Uh, I'll give you the backstory here. Uh, Judah is one of 12 brothers, and all of these brothers are fighting to be head of the family. The family they're part of is Jacob's 12 sons, and the Lord has promised them that these 12 brothers will become the 12 tribes of Israel, and that this nation of Israel will be God's people. So right now, God's people is 12 brothers, however many sisters, if they have any wives, and this father. Uh, This is the people of God, and Judah is now the leader in this family. Jacob's pretty weak leader has basically no leadership of his children. Uh, They don't do anything that he wants, and so the kids are kind of running the place. Joseph was the favored son who was going to be leading and taking things over, but now Judah's gotten rid of him by first conspiring to kill him, and then instead selling him into slavery. So dad's favorite son is gone. Now I'm in charge, and we get to see what Judah's leadership is like. Now, you probably already guessed that if he's the kind of brother that sold his brother into slavery to get on top, he's not going to be the most benevolent leader in the world. And in fact, that's the picture he's going to give us, a picture of what self-motivated, even satanic leadership from below looks like. So we're going to dive in here to Genesis 38. Uh, We have in our worship handouts uh, a call and response after it. The words of the Lord, I'll say, and if you'll respond there, may all flesh tremble. Hear the words of the Lord in Genesis 38. It happened at that time that Judah went down from his brothers, and he turned aside to a certain Adulamite, whose name was Hira. 
There Judah saw the daughter of a Canaanite whose name was Shua. He took her and he went into her. And she conceived and bore a son, and he called his name Ur. She conceived again and bore a son, and she called his name Onan. Yet again she bore a son, and she called his name Shelah. Judah was in Kezib when she bore him. And Judah took a wife for Ur, his firstborn, and her name was Tamar. But Ur, Judah's firstborn, was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and the Lord put him to death. Then Judah said to Onan, go into your brother's wife and perform the duty of a brother-in-law to her and raise up offspring for your brother. But Onan knew that the offspring would not be his. So whenever he went into his brother's wife, he would waste the semen on the ground and so not give offspring to his brother. And what he did was wicked in the sight of the Lord, and he put him to death also. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. And so Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In the course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. When Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to the sheep shearers and his friend Hira the Adulamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance to Enaim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come into you. For he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, what will you give me that you may come into me? And he answered, I will send you a young goat from the flock. And she said, if you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, what pledge shall I give you? She replied, your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went into her and she conceived by him. And then she arose and went away, taking off her veil and she put on the garments of her widowhood. When Judah sent the young goat by his friend the Adulamite to take back the pledge from the woman's hand, he did not find her. And he asked the men of the place, where is the cult prostitute who was at Enaim in the roadside? And they said, no cult prostitute has been here. So he returned to Judah and said, I have not found her. Also, the men of the place said, no cult prostitute has been here. And Judah replied, let her keep the things as her own or we shall be laughed at. You see, I sent this young goat, and you did not find her. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, bring her out and let her be burned. And as she was brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, by the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, please identify who these are, the signet and the cord and the staff. And then Judah identified them and said, she is more righteous than I, since I did not give to her my son Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand and the midwife took it and tied a scarlet thread on it saying, this one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, what a breach you have made for yourself. Uh, 
and therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was Zerah. The words of the Lord, may all flesh tremble. So through Judah's role in that story, the Lord teaches the flock of God to identify predatory leaders. And he warns leaders not to fall into wolf-like behaviors. And then he even calls predatory leaders to turn back to the mercy of God and receive his grace. Now, a lot of times in Genesis, we understand the stories best by following them through one character at a time. We learn much if we follow Abraham as he is sacrificing his son Isaac and then receives him back. But then we learn other things as we follow Isaac while he goes up the hill being led by his father. And this is one of those stories. We learn one set of lessons by following Judah and another set of lessons by following Tamar. And so we look at Judah today and what we see in him are marks of predatory leadership in the people of God and his turn from those behaviors back into the way of faith. Now, we will see later, Judah will come back into the story about this far from the end of the story as we are now from the beginning. And when he does, he will be the courageous, self-sacrificial leader that we are all looking for. And we'll ask the question, now, how did Judah from chapter 38 become this kind of leader? And the answer is at the end of this story, he begins to turn, he begins to confess his sin and say, I was wrong. So we get two things then. We get the marks of what this sort of leadership looks like, but we also see the path out of it, what it looks like to turn from that kind of leadership. Let's walk through the story. In the first 10 verses, we see the first three marks. These are marks of satanic leadership in the people of God. And the first three come together. We see in verses 1 through 10, Judah at once leaves his family, befriends a Canaanite, and then uh, marries a Canaanite woman. And so, in a sense, he is leaving the people of God, leaving the promises of God, and leaving the ways of God all at once. His family had been given God's promises. Uh, You, this small family right now, just 12 brothers and a father. One day you will be a great nation, the Lord says. And when you are, you will conquer this land. You will defeat the peoples of this land who will have fallen deep into immorality by then. And so, stay apart from them. Don't marry within the people of the land and follow my ways. Teach my ways to your children. This is what the Lord had taught them. This was their family way. Judah, like his uh, uncle Esau, decides instead, well, I'm going to leave the family. I'm going to go hang out with the bad guys. I'm going to go befriend the people of the world, take influence from them, learn their ways, live life their way. I'm going to marry a Canaanite woman and thus nullify the promises of God. Now our descendants and their descendants are going to be the same people even. He fails to raise his sons in the ways of the Lord. As we see, these first two sons are so wicked that God puts them to death. Uh, His great-grandfather Abraham, uh, the Lord said of him, I have chosen him to teach my ways to his children. This is part of what the family of God was meant to do, teach the Lord's ways to their children. Judah fails to do this, and his sons grow up to be so wicked that the Lord puts them to death. So at once, in one move, he 
forsakes God's promises, forsakes God's ways, and forsakes God's people. And so there we have the first three marks of predatory leadership. Contempt for God's promises, contempt for God's ways, and contempt for God's people. In the church, leaders get their power from God's promises. Ministry is an, an uphill battle in the snow with no gloves on. It, it is, it's hard. And when men are successful at it, we're tempted to like put them on a pedestal and say, like, these guys are just a different breed. How do they do something that is so difficult? But the truth is, Charles Spurgeon was an ordinary man with ordinary weaknesses. Uh, Matt Chandler down in Texas is an ordinary man with ordinary weaknesses. I'm an ordinary man with ordinary weaknesses. And so how do these ordinary men who aren't different from anybody else, how do they do something so difficult and so supernatural as Christian ministry? The answer is the promises of God, because Jesus says when he gives the Great Commission, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So we're able to do this, sort of, we're able to preach this message, and the Lord does things through it because he's here and he's with us. We're relying on those promises to have power in our ministries. Or we rely on the Apostle Paul saying, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation, right? We know, ooh, just about lost my balance there, right in the middle of talking about God's power. That would have been fun. So we know that, we know that the Lord is working through this message. The gospel message is the power of God to, to save. We believe Jesus when he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and even to the uttermost parts of the earth. How else could we do ministry like this other than the promises that God has given us? Trouble is, after a while of doing ministry and getting a feel for what you're good at and what you're not good at and what the people around you are good at, uh, the ordinary feeling promises of God and the ordinary means by which ministry is done, you know, the same old preaching, singing, baptizing, evangelism, discipleship. We were doing that 500 years ago. We're still doing it, right? Same old stuff. It all begins to feel like it's not enough. And this other stuff is what we really need to do ministry. And so next thing you know, the, the pastor's study feels more like a, a politician's office because that's where the power is, or feels like a celebrity's entourage, because that's where the power is, or, or feels like uh, a general's situation room, because that's, that's what power looks like. We begin to chase after the ways of the world with contempt for the promises that God has given us, and the, the ways of ministry, and the means, even though they feel ordinary, that God has given us. Uh, there's temptation even to forsake the people of God who have gone before us. And so a, a pastor can begin to feel in his heart, I don't want to be the next Isaiah who was persecuted for what he preached, or the next Apostle Paul, or even the next Charles Spurgeon. I want to be the next Lionel Messi with all of those Instagram followers. That's what I want to be. All right, forsaking the, the people of God in the past and the legacy that we're walking in for what looks alluring today. These are the sort of things that Judah does as he forsakes the people of God, forsakes the ways of God, forsakes the promises of God, and goes and lives among the Canaanites. 
And so in the heart, the beginning of it, this is what James is talking about when he says wisdom that is fueled by self-interest, wisdom that doesn't look up to God for, for, for what it needs, instead receives everything it gets from below. There is the heart of leadership that winds up in the end preying on his people. It starts with walking away from God's promises, from God's ways, from God's people and the wisdom of God's people. Well, where does it lead? That's what we see in the, the next four marks. We follow the story again through picking up at verse 11. And Judah's son's wickedness have left this woman, Tamar, now twice bereaved. Uh, she has been there for the death of two husbands, been faithful for these two husbands when they were cruel and wicked to her. And she's left with no children and both husbands now dead. This is the worst possible situation that an ancient woman can be in because they prized having children above everything. So for her to be left with no children, this meant no way to provide for herself in the future after Judah dies and her generation is in charge of things. Uh, this means no sense of fulfillment or having done anything in life. This means her greatest desires in life are not met. Here she is in Judah's house. He is the one that God has given her to, the one who should take care of her, the one who should make sure she has everything she needs. And so he's the one that's got to look and say, okay, how are we going to take care of you, right? Both of my sons were so wicked that they died and you're left widowed like this. All right, it's on me to take care of you. What am I going to do? And he tells her, go back to your father's house, right? He kicks her out of his house, which in the ancient world would bring a tremendous amount of shame upon a woman. You're not welcome at my house anymore. Go back to your dad's house. So she must go back. He will not take care of her. He will not provide for her. Uh, his duty in that custom would have been to give her his third son as a husband so she could have children. Instead, he lies to her and says, well, when he grows, he's not quite of age yet, but when he grows up, I'll give him to you. Uh, but it says right there that he has no intention of actually following through. He's afraid that his third son is going to die too, just like the first two did. So he lies to her to get rid of her so that he can neglect her and abandon her. And this shows us the fourth mark of predatory leadership, contempt for the people God has given you. God has placed people in the care of leaders, and there's a trust that's put there. Sometimes leaders, though, see those people as just means to an end and not people to care for. And so what should be a duty turns instead into, you're an inconvenience to me. Right? I just need to, to get rid of you. This contempt for the people that one has been called to lead is something we see a contrast with between Jesus and the Pharisees in his day as well. The pictures we get of Jesus are... The tender shepherd who binds up the weak and carries them himself, right? Or the, the one who sees a smoldering wick and does not quench it, but, but nurses it back to life. Uh, the shepherd who gently leads those who are with young and still recovering from childbirth and have a young lamb that they're trying to carry with them. This gentle leader who loves and cares for all of the sheep that he is caring for. By contrast, his enemies in his day, the Pharisees, 
uh, were notorious for, it even says in the scriptures, devouring up widows' homes. Uh, So these guys would figure out that some of these widows had estates that they could, with their power, kind of finagle away from them and take for themselves. Uh, Leaders and the people of God who cast themselves as the ones who were bringing about reform and turning the Jewish people back to righteousness, but behind the scenes, they were cheating widows out of their estates. Same kind of leadership Judah is doing here. I want you around when you're useful to me, and I don't want you around when you're not useful to me. There's been a recent example of this in our convention that I've talked about before, and I feel like we ought to bring up here. Uh, If you don't know much about our church or the organization we're part of, we're a Baptist church that's part of a Southern Baptist convention. Uh, And what that means is that we cooperate with a whole bunch of other Baptist churches. We all uh, give a certain amount of, of our tithes and offerings into basically a big pot that we call the cooperative program. And from that big pot that thousands of churches like us are giving to, uh, we fund seminaries. We have six seminaries, including the one that trained me and trained Paul and that Ian's going to now. Uh, We send missionaries all over the world. I still think the most efficient missionary sending agency in the world. We plant churches here in America. There's churches being planted in Indianapolis right now with that money. And what we do is we all get together once a year, up to 10 people from any church I think can go to this big convention. We'll vote together okay, we'll give this much of it here, do this much of it here, do that much of it there. And then we will appoint a committee called the executive committee, and their job is to do all that stuff. So they actually write the checks to the seminaries and send all the stuff out and carry it all out. And that comes with a lot of power and a lot of trust when you're asked to do that for the year. So what we learned recently was that there were certain individuals on that executive committee who'd been there for a while, gotten comfortable in the position. Uh, and then there were some women in Southern Baptist churches that came to them, many individual instances, and said things like, hey, you need to know that my last pastor raped me, and now he's the pastor at this other church, a state away, and they don't know that. Southern Baptist Church, you guys need to tell them. Here's a newspaper article, talks all about it, it really happened. Can you guys take care of that? Uh, Several times this happens. And several of these men on this committee kind of pulled a Judah here and said, we are not interested in helping you. You just need to stop this, right? And some of them even took part in, in bullying and mistreating these women to try to get them to stop talking so that they wouldn't bring any disrepute on the convention. Uh, this got exposed. We ran a report. Uh, we learned a whole lot about it. In the last two conventions, we've been dealing with the aftermath of this. Many people have lost their jobs justifiably over that. Uh, I've been at the last two conventions. I can tell you as best as my limited eyes can see, it looks like all the bad guys are gone, but we never fully know. And so we're still looking at things. We're still writing new policies to prevent things like that from happening again. But you can see how the spirit that Judah has toward Tamar is very much the same, right? We want you around when you're useful, but if you're not useful, you're just just getting in the way, and I don't want to take care of you. This is the opposite of how Christ calls his servants to lead their people. And so we have a picture in Judah then of what satanic headship can look like, contempt for the people that they're leading. There's also something Judah does here that's kind of a sub-point to this that I want to point out, because this is a common move 
that predatory leaders use to harm the people they're leading, and that is blaming a victim for the sin committed against them. Now, what he thinks to himself is, well, this woman has killed two of my sons. I don't want my third son to die too, right? It's got a, got a bit of a, a black widow vibe to it, right? Like my first two sons died married to her. I'm not going to give my third son to her. Like who is this woman who all of her husbands keep dying? What really happened though? Really, both of those men were so wicked and treated her so terribly that the Lord put them to death. So he is in his heart blaming her for sin committed against her. This is something, this is a move that predatory leaders often use. You'll hear stories of cultures where uh, a woman might come forward and say, uh, I, I just want everybody to know that that man raped me. And she will hear from her leaders, well, you shouldn't have been wearing that outfit. That was your fault. This is blaming a victim for the sin committed against her. These are classic tells of predatory leadership. And Judah's giving us a textbook case of what it looks like. We move on to verse 12 then, and we see if that is outwardly how he fails to care for the people he's leading, we see that inwardly he doesn't care for them either. In verse 12, we learn that in the course of time, his wife dies. And then very quickly after that, he's comforted, like boom, right? That's, that's fast, isn't it? Uh, and we might pass over that, except we just read a chapter earlier about Jacob learning that his son Joseph has died. And Jacob's grief was great, wasn't it? He mourned, he wept, he tore his clothes, he put on sackcloth, and then everyone rose to comfort him when the time of grieving was over. And he said, no, I refuse to be comforted. I will mourn my son until I die. Now, that's a stark contrast to Judah, who you know, this feels a little normal. His wife dies, he grieves her, then he is comforted. But then we follow that trail and wait, hang on, Judah's already had two sons die. And we don't hear any record of him mourning his son's death. So two sons die, he doesn't even appear to shed a tear. His wife dies and he's very quickly comforted. We'll find out in a moment he is too much over her with what he does next. We're seeing that this is a man who is not emotionally attached to the people in his life, and he's a, a callous man. He's a man that doesn't even grieve when the people close to him die. And so the next mark of satanic headship is callousness, right? If the last one was an outward lack of care for the people God has put in your care, this is a lack of inward concern to even care about them. Now, I need to be careful here because there are a number of reasons people might grow emotionally detached, and it's not always because they're bad people. Some people have been through terrible trauma, and it's just very hard to trust somebody again, and so they just kind of keep their distance, and so they wind up emotionally distant from others. Other people don't know what to do with grief, and someone they truly love passes away, and they just, they just don't know what to do, and so they're confused. Uh, plenty of reasons that someone might be a little emotionally distant or detached from what is going on in their lives, but we can see that that is not the case with Judah, right? Judah doesn't care for anybody because he doesn't care about anybody in his life. Everybody there is a means to an end. He could plot to murder his brother in just a few seconds because the hatred was already there in his heart. 
He could decide to sell his brother into slavery like that. He could tell his father that his son is dead. And when his father is grieving, saying, I'll grieve forever, refuse to tell him the truth that would comfort his father. This is a man who doesn't care about anyone. That's why when his sons die, it doesn't seem to bother him. When his wife dies, and he just bounces right back and doesn't seem to care. So we're talking then about a lack of inward care for the people in his life. I know a story that demonstrates this in the modern world. Uh, I talked one time to somebody who, uh, who worked for one of those faith healers on TV. You know, the guys that like touch people on the forehead and they're miraculously healed. Uh, he worked for one of those guys in his office and, uh, you know, believed in this guy for a while. And he said, you know, I, the first time I sensed that something was wrong was when uh, his secretary came into his office and I was there. And she said, uh, there's a woman on the other side of town who's asking if you'll come pray for her son. I think the son was deaf, but I can't remember that detail in the story. Something like that in her son's life. Will you pray for him that that he'll be healed? Uh, And he just kind of very callously paused and said, "Uh, yeah, tell her 10,000 and I'll go. And uh, got back to what he was doing. Um, Seeing this man, young man with this ailment and this suffering mother as just nothing but dollar signs, right? No real concern for anybody. The same way that Judah is seeing Tamar as just a, just a means to an heir, really. Nothing important in his life, a total lack of the human factor in what he is doing. So then the fifth mark of satanic headship is, is callousness toward the people you're leading. Okay, back to the story. After Judah is comforted, uh, around verse 16, he goes to the sheep shearing party. Uh, and sheep shearing is like big harvest time, big party time, right? Like all the wool's here, we're going to make money, it's going to be great, so they throw a big party. He's there, he is ready to celebrate, and he sees right there, he's just gotten over grieving his wife, he sees a woman there that he thinks is a prostitute, and it reads as if the first woman he sees, he's just like, woohoo, right? Just like ready to go, and that the interaction they have, I mean, you can just feel how rushed it is, uh, how insensitive it is. Uh, he says to her in verse 16, his, his romantic pickup line is, come, let me come into you, right? That's romantic, right? This is a real, real heartthrob here, isn't it? Uh, then they have this back and forth transaction that has this very rough feel to it. And then when it finally happens, the rhythm of it is so quick. And so he gave the things to her and he went into her and she conceived by him and she got up and left. Like you can feel the the heartlessness, the lack of emotional attachment in this encounter. When we are at a restaurant and we order food, we use more niceties in that conversation when we're ordering lunch or dinner than he's using in this conversation with a woman he wants to be intimate with. Some of us are nicer to the person who makes your coffee at the coffee shop than he is to this woman that he wants to be intimate with. And that rushed scene is meant to point out that Judah just jumps right into this with no sexual restraint whatsoever. He's over his wife, boom, I'm ready to have fun, right? First woman he sees, he jumps in and he's there. That's an intentional contrast to the following chapter where Joseph is going to be put under great temptation, a very powerful, 
presumably very beautiful woman that he is all alone with in a house day after day as he's serving his master, the wife of his master, says to him day after day, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. And Joseph keeps saying, no, 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 I cannot sin against my master. I cannot sin against God. So where Joseph has much restraint, Judah is showing that he has none. And this is another mark of satanic leadership. No self-restraint. The fruits of the Spirit include things like patience and self-control. If a leader is relying on God, if the Spirit of God is empowering him, if he's indwelt by the Spirit of God, if he's looking to God for wisdom, the Lord is going to teach him over time patience, self-control, love for others, joy, fruits like that in his life which will become important because the heart always wants more, doesn't it? Somebody once asked John D. Rockefeller, how much money is enough? And he said, one more dollar, right? The heart always wants more, more satisfaction, more pleasure, more money, more honor, right? More people following me. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, the way you need to distinguish yourself from the false teachers around you is through contentment, right? Godliness with contentment is great gain. If we have food and shelter, we should be content with these things. So spiritual leadership then learns self-control, leads and teaches with contentment with however much or little one has, learns to tame those desires that are wild in the heart that always want more. Predatory leadership, on the other hand, is there to get more and more. And so you see a lack of self-restraint. This is what leads to the embezzlement scandals that you've heard about, to the men who fall to great pride, to the men who fall to the things, the immorality that they commit with women. It all comes down to a lack of self-restraint. So there's the sixth mark, a lack of self-restraint. Lastly, and in some ways the worst, in verse 24 Judah sees, he learns that Tamar has become pregnant and she's been immoral. And his knee-jerk reaction is burn her, right? Uh, In the Hebrew, I'm told that's two words. Take her out, let her be burned, just boom, boom, like quick snap judgment. He does not say, hey, do we have any evidence like that we should look at here? He doesn't say, hey, what happened? He doesn't go to her and say, hey, tell me the story, what happened? It's just a quick boom, we need to burn her. The worst punishment you could give somebody in the ancient world, being burned to death. And so we see there then the last mark of predatory leadership. It's harsh, hypocritical judgment. Judgment toward her is harsh. It's needlessly harsh. Never mind the fact that he has committed the same sin that she has, right? Yeah, she's been immoral. He's been immoral too. And he's the one that initiated it. Yet he would judge her that quickly and send her off to be burned that quickly. This is another contrast we see between Jesus and his opponents when he walked the earth. Uh, Jesus at one point is there when a, a woman who has committed adultery is brought forward to be stoned. And the Pharisees just can't wait to carry it out. And so they ask him, well, what do you think we should do? And he says, well... The answer is simple. The one of you without sin, throw the first stone and nobody can do anything, right? So he points out their hypocrisy 
Yes, this woman has sinned, but all of you have sinned too. And here you are harshly judging this woman who has committed the same kinds of sins that you are committing. Not only that, but he himself goes to the woman and says, where are all the people who want to condemn you? And she says, well, they're gone now. And he says, well, I don't condemn you either. Go and sin no more. Uh, So here Jesus is demonstrating that compassionate, grace-filled, loving leadership that we are called to. And the Pharisees show a little more what it's like to lead like Judah. Oh, she did wrong? Boom, burner, right? Just no heart for the people, no grace, nothing but hypocrisy in the heart. There was a, a pastor who lived long ago in New England named Jonathan Edwards, uh, and he wrote a whole bunch of resolutions. He really wanted to be a faithful pastor. He wrote 70 resolutions, and I'm going to lead like this, he said. And one of them was resolved to treat those who have fallen into the deepest sins as if I had committed those same sins myself. And there's the heart of grace-filled leadership. It doesn't overlook sin. It doesn't say this doesn't matter. It says, well, I'm a sinner too, and if you'll follow me back to Jesus, I'll take you there. Right? Leaders have to make judgments. It's part of the job. Do we fire this person? Uh, What do we do about this member who has fallen into deep sin? We have to make judgment calls like this. Good leadership makes those calls with mercy, with wisdom, seeking the Lord. Predatory leadership makes them selfishly, hypocritically, and rashly. And that's the picture that we see in Judah. So those are some concrete ways we can identify the kind of teachers and leaders Jesus is talking about when he says, beware of wolves that come to you in sheep's clothing. You will recognize them by their fruit. What's that fruit look like? It looks like Judah's life. It looks like contempt for God's promises, contempt for his ways, contempt for his people, contempt for the very people you're called to lead, callousness toward the people we're called to lead, no self-restraint and harsh hypocritical judgment. The good news is that all is not lost in this story, not even for Judah. What happens next is Tamar has his identifying possessions, his equivalent of like driver's license and credit card, his signet ring, his cord, his staff. And as she is being carried off to be burned, she has them sent to him using the same words that he used to his father, please identify whose robe this is. She says to him, please identify whose stuff this is. By this man, I am pregnant. And all of a sudden, his sin is exposed to himself, to everybody around, and everyone realizes, oh, Judah has committed immorality. There are several ways a leader can handle this when they are confronted with their sin, right? How dare that woman lie like this? Let's do worse than burn her, right? It could have reacted like that. Instead, he says, she's more righteous than I. I did wrong here. You could render those words, she is righteous and and not I. So in a word like that, he confesses his sin He clears her name so that she is no longer taken out to be burned. And he demonstrates the first step in repentance, which is confessing sin. So we're left with this this ray of hope. 
Some of us are looking now and saying, is there any hope for those leaders I'm thinking about that I once trusted and I don't trust anymore? And some of us see glimmers of this kind of leadership in our own lives, right? The way we lead our children, the way we lead our Sunday school classes, the way we lead at work, right? We are all sinners that God is continuing to change. And I wonder if you saw echoes of your own leadership in this like I do. What do we do then? Well, we look at our sin plainly in the eye and we look to God and we say, Lord, I did this and you're right that it is wrong. There's the first step to repentance. Now, what we want to do is protect ourselves, right? Keep the, keep the sin hidden. We even want to keep the sin hidden from ourselves, right? Self-deception is a big deal. David said, blessed is the man whose sin is covered and whose heart there is no deceit, right? He's not deceiving himself. And so the, the first thing we have to do is stop deceiving ourselves about our sin, stop trying to put our sin in the dark where we don't have to deal with it in our hearts, and instead say, I have done that, and I know the Lord sees it, but I know the Lord is merciful, and so I will go to the Lord and confess it to him. Then the second half of that step is just what Judah does. He moves from protecting himself to doing right by the other person, right? from self-protection to love for others. No longer is he trying to hide his sin. No longer is he trying to get his own way. He realizes, I need to clear her name. And the only way I can clear her name is to say that I was wrong and she was right. And this is the logic by which sometimes we need to go to other people and say, hey, I, I have sinned against you and you need to know what I've done. Uh, not every time. We don't always have to say every little thing we've done to everybody. But sometimes your sin has harmed somebody else. And it would be part of their healing or it would help them and serve them if you were honest about what you have done. And so we change our decision-making logic from, okay, do I tell them or not? Well, what's better for me? What protects me, right? Selfish logic to, do I talk to them about it or not? Well, what's better for them, right? Is it going to help heal them if I tell them about this? Is it just going to cause more problems for them than it starts? Now we're moving from self-love to love for others. And that's actually what Judah demonstrates as he turns here and says, no, actually, she's righteous. I'm the one who is wrong here. And so I want to leave you just at the feet of Jesus this morning, the one who is merciful. Uh, if, if you are thinking of someone who has done things to you as we talk about this, uh, how do we pray for those people? We pray the Lord will lead them to repentance because if he can lead you to repentance, he can lead whoever you're thinking of to repentance. And if instead you're thinking about yourself and thinking, well, how do I turn from this thing I have done or this thing I continue to do? Confess your sin to God. Do not hide it from yourself or from him. And if you're harming others, if you're hurting others who trust you, go to them. Tell them about it too, if it would serve them as well. The good news is that for people like Judah, for people like me, for people like you, for all of us, Jesus Christ has died to pay for sins. And the the death of Judah's greater son, Jesus Christ, is enough to pay for all of these sins. So it's enough to pay for your sins, too. So you come to him, look to him for forgiveness, and you will find it there, for our God is merciful. So I call you, come to him. Let's pray together.